Thank you for listening to the Change Your Filter podcast. I'm your host, Tall Paul. We are powered, as always, by Contractor Commerce. Today's guest is Victor Rancor. Now, I'm asking you to listen to this interview with an open mind. Going into this, Victor had never listened to my podcast, and I had never heard really any of his story. I thought I knew Victor, but I was completely wrong about him. A few years ago, I stumbled across a post by Victor on Facebook, and I thought it was distasteful, and it was bad for the industry. I didn't see his content for another year or so intentionally, and trust me, he probably wasn't looking at mine. And then one day, a picture popped up with him and his birth father. It made me pause for a moment and appreciate the fact that we all have a story and we all have a struggle. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to meet Victor, and I was struck by a few things. One, how he immediately gathers a crowd wherever he goes, and two, by his unapologetic confidence. But still, I I just wondered, I thought there must be more to the story here. In this conversation, Victor shares his recent commitment to sobriety, his reflection on childhood trauma, and his commitment to uniting the industry around him. Please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Victor Rancor. Hey, this is Victor Rancor, and you're listening to the Change Your Filter Podcast with Tall Paul. Victor, welcome to the Change Your Filter Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Tall Paul, do you like to be called Paul all the time or Tall Paul all the time? You know, when I was in seventh grade, I woke up one day and I was six, seven. And so you can imagine just how goofy, I think I was six, seven, 160 pounds. And it dawned on someone in my class that like, your name's Paul and you're tall, tall Paul. And so it became really annoying. And so, you know, through high school, nicknames kind of like come and go and, and tall Paul kind of like faded off. And then I got to college and someone was like, Hey, tall Paul. And I've been hanging on to it ever since. So you can call me whatever you'd like. I got a buddy of mine and his, his nickname is too tall because he's too damn tall. But how tall is he? He's like six, eight. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm six, eight. You're too tall. Wow. We, we've really, uh, we've really got this thing coming out <laughs> hot. So, um, well, thank you for joining. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. I, I don't know you that well. So part of this is me getting to know you a little bit more and you know, not everybody knows you and those who do know you may, may have a misunderstanding, right? So I want to tell a little bit of, sh- of your story, but I want to start off. Something seems different lately. Something Something th- seems, I don't want to say unusual, but you seem different. What's what's going on in your life? What's going on with Victor? Something seems different. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just, I had an epiphany probably over a month ago, man. It's It's been kind of brewing up, like trying to figure out like who I am, who I want to be, who I want to be known as, how I want to carry myself. And I think that um, it's kind of changed over the last probably two months. And uh, one thing first is I, you know, I stopped drinking hundred percent. So I don't, I don't drink. I don't, you know, I used to, I used to do a bunch of, you know, edibles every night and I don't do those anymore. So, was, uh, and just stuff like that, man, just kind of changing my mindset and also getting more into reading, learning about myself. So, you know, growing up, I never really paid attention to the things that I do and the actions that I take and, and why it happens. And I'm starting to realize it's just my childhood and how I grew up that's kind of leading me to the stuff that I do now. And I do it subconsciously. So I'm really just trying to be really conscious about my way I talk to people, the way I go about business, the way that things that I say and, and realizing, you know, the kind of impact that they have. So um, I think 
that's been really big difference. I, you know, I wake up every morning, I kind of journal, kind of write down, uh, how I envision myself, how, how I want to carry myself. What are my core values? What do I believe in? And, and I think that's been a big difference over the last couple of months is just realizing who I am and, and what makes Victor tick, I guess. Did you come to this realization or this fork in the road on your own, or was it through an event or through another person? You know, it was kind of snowballing, I guess, you know, obviously being on the road all the time, traveling, uh, doing all these onsite trainings, doing events and being away from my family. It's just kind of, kind of, you start when you get out and you go, you watch to these events and, you know, first thing you want to do, everybody's like, oh, let's go grab a beer. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're drinking, you're, you're out, you're out late. You're not being yourself. You're not focusing on your health or anything like that. You're just, you know, you're just kind of going through the motions. And I felt like that's how the beginning of this year was. I was really just going through the motions and, and not who I was. And even like, you know, if I have a couple of drinks, I'm not who I, who I want to be. I'm not as outgoing. Yeah. I'm not as correct. I care charismatic. I can't help as many people. So uh, I started catching myself and I'm like, man, this is not how I want to feel. And it was mostly, you know, honestly, it was myself. It was finally just, it, it kind of all closed in on me. And I'm like, Vic, you either got to change or, or something's got to give, I guess. So I think I, I made the decision consciously to, to make that change. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, so far so good. It's, it's been, it's been nine day difference for me, my family, uh, my employees, stuff like that. They all kind of see the difference. Has it been hard behaviorally to get out of the rhythm of, you know, having a drink to celebrate, having a drink when you see some friends, talk to me about the, um, you know, how hard it is to quit drinking and what that's felt like. It, it hasn't been hard. I, I realized when I started writing down the things and the way I acted when I did, I really started hating it. So I've gotten to the point where I, like, I just hate, I don't even want to feel like that anymore. I don't want to be like that. So I think that's been the, the biggest thing is like, I look at like, I went out, you know, I go out to where I was at, I was in Vegas and I was like, I had so much fun not even drinking. Me and my brother mm-hmm. just hanging out, we're checking out the venue. We actually had more fun than I'd ever really have. Or, yeah. you know, just the other night, I went out to dinner with my staff to Mastro's, take them out to Mastro's. And normally I'm like, you know, have a half a bottle of wine or something like that. And I'm just like, I just feel more in tune with what's going on. So it, it's actually got to the point where it's like, now I'm like, I hate, I don't even hate the thought of it. I mean, it's not even in my realm that I even want to do it anymore. I think it's just got myself so far deep into it that I'm like, it's not who I want to be. Well, congratulations. That's a, that's a lot of hard work and ongoing work. And I know what is, has helped me over the years is, I try to think about tomorrow, like how good am I going to feel when I wake up and I didn't have, you know, one beer too many or whatever, and you wake up fresh and that freshness has like a compounding effect on your growth and you start to feel smarter and you start to feel like more of an edge and quicker. And so hopefully that's. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I've realized too. It's like, and I, I used to make a joke. I used to make a joke that, uh, I drink just to give everybody else an opportunity to win. And because when I'm, you know, when I first got into HVAC, I was, a, I was already six months sober at that point. Mm-hmm. So when I first got in, I had nothing to do besides for study and how to become the best technician on the planet. And that's why, you know, when I was first starting out, I was running laps around everybody because all I did was I went home and studied and then I came back to work and I beat them again and again and again. And the guys that were in my same class as me were held back because they were just out still partying and doing all these other things. And I really started thinking back. I'm like, man, that's what really accelerated my growth in this industry in the beginning. And now I can only imagine now with everything that I have at my fingertips, I might have so many opportunities like this. I, I just keep going, running through my head. I'm like, over the next couple months, like my entire life is going to change just by all the opportunities I'm putting myself in front of. So I just really want to be my best every day to be able to, to, to seize those opportunities, I guess. Good. Well, 
talk to me about, I want to go back and talk about childhood. I want to talk about high school, but you just mentioned when you first got into HVAC, how did you get into HVAC and what were those first couple of years like? You know, I had a buddy of mine, we were doing construction together. Um, we were doing, we were laying concrete. We were doing all the, the, the stuff that you don't want to do, right? The backbreaking stuff, the stuff where you're breathing nasty dust. And I used to work with a grinder and grinding, grinding bricks and stuff every single day. And it was blasting me in the face and it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I had no, that at that point, my daughter was just born. She was only about five months old. And you're about how old at this time? She's eight. So I was about 25 years old. Okay. Yep. So about 25 years old, um, you know, I was working under the table, making about $150 a day doing construction, come home at night, beat up. My body was beat up. And I had a buddy of mine. He came to work with me. He came to work doing concrete work with me one day and we just used him for, we only needed him for that week to do some work. And he, uh, he responded to a Craigslist ad for a company called service champions, uh, which is one of the largest companies in the country now. And he's like, I'm going to go work at this company. They're going to offer me, you know, $60,000 a year or blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to get my own work truck. And I told him straight up, I was like, well, I'll see you next, next month when you need work or next week when you need work. Cause it just sounded fake. Right. Cause you answer a Craigslist ad. Like there's usually two outcomes on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, you know, a couple months went by and, and I, and I actually invited him over. I said, Hey, I'm having a Super Bowl party at my house, you know, come on over. So he came over, he was been in the truck for maybe a month at that point or whatever it was. And, uh, he showed me his pay stub and he's like, look, I'm making this much money. And the, the first thing I said, I was like, if you're making that much money, I can only imagine what I can make. And the next day I was, I was like, gave me an interview, went over there, applied. They wanted to make me an installer. And I was like, no, I want to do what he's doing. I, 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 like I said, I got really good communication skills. They were like, well, you're, you're a construction worker. You're good with your hands. Like, I think you'd be good at installing. I was like, no, you're not understanding. I want the, I want to be a technician and I will be your best technician. I remember telling him cause they made me go through three interviews to get the job. And I was like, give me an opportunity. I'm going, I'm going to make you money. I'm going to make, I'm going to be very, very successful. And, and I remember Leland being in the room and he finally said, you know what, let's just go ahead. Let's bring him on. Let's, let's give him an opportunity. So, you know, I still remember that day. It was, it was, it was really intimidating. I'm sitting across from Leland Smith and his whole management staff. It's like a, it's like a, it's like I'm being interrogated. I had like seven mm -hmm. managers all interrogating me to get a job, which is also a, you know, something that's important too. If you guys are own an HVAC company, right? put people through a ringer to get the job to prove they really want it. And to get, if you can put them to that ringer, they're going to feel like they actually won a prize to get that job and they're not going to want to leave. Right. So that was something I really picked up from day one from, from service champions. They put me through, they literally put me through a freaking ringer. I still remember sitting by my phone waiting for that second call for the second interview, waiting for that call for that third interview and that see the number coming through how excited I was. So that was pretty cool, I guess. But yeah, that's how I got in the industry. That was, you know, March, 2015 is when I started. So you started in the industry 2015 and you're clearly not a service technician for service champions anymore. What did that path look like? But I quickly became, you know, I knew day one that I wanted to become a, either a selling tech or a salesman because mm -hmm. I knew how much money they were making. These guys are making 500,000, $600,000 a year at service champions. And I was like, you know, they, it's crazy, right? <laughs> I never made, I made, I never made less than a hundred thousand dollars a year ever there. Like my first year I made like almost 160,000. So knowing nothing about HVAC. So, you know, it was like, I saw the opportunity. So day one, like I told you, I was sober at the time. I had nothing better to do than study. So I went home and practiced on my baby practice on my dog. I was role-playing, learning communication skills, going through everything, every process that they taught us and becoming the best. And I was a grinder. Like, so if you guys are 
everyone sees me work and hustle now. I was doing the same thing, but working for Leland, I was working yeah. 15, 16 hours a day, crawling through attics. I was the guy that didn't skip anything. I did the, I did my process every single call. It didn't matter who the customer was. It didn't matter what it was because I knew that if I followed the process that I had created and that they helped me create, that it spit out money. So very quickly, I moved up the rankings. I knew day one, I said, I'm not going to be the best M1 technician, which is the lower level. I said, I'm going to beat every technician. And I beat them. Dumb. I beat them month one. Every single technician at my very first month in the field, I won airtime 500 for the top turn tech in the country. And I knew I got addicted. I got so addicted to the industry and so addicted to what the possibilities were. And uh, yeah, so I worked my way up. I was there for about three years. I moved my way into a sell into a salesman. I was making great money. And Leland decided to change our pay plan after I just came off a record month. And and that's when it kind of opened the opportunity for a competitor to recruit me. And he uh, he did a really good job at it. I mean, he flew me and my family out first class to Hawaii, put us on the in a presidential suite on the North Court, North Shore of Kauai, gave me his Range Rover to drive, cut me a bunch of cut me a big check, a really big check to be a sign-on bonus. And then, you know, he gave me an opportunity to kind of run his operation for him. Interesting. Do you mind sharing the name of that company or who that was? Uh, that was Ken Starr with uh, Home Comfort USA. So okay. it, that was a total, it's a total different experience. You go from service yeah. champions where Leland is there every single day. It's this big corporation. It's like every T's dotted or every T's crossed, every I's dotted to go into a company where the owner's living in Hawaii and you got to come to work and grind every day while he's sitting on a beach in Hawaii. And it was total different atmosphere, different marketing, different clientele. Like that's really where I cut my teeth in sales. Cause I went from service champions where it's super easy. It's so like when the guys tell me, Oh, I did as much as service champions. I'm like, come over to a company that doesn't give you every little single tool that you ever had and then right. try to perform. And they always should fail. When they left service champions, they'd always go back because it didn't have, it wasn't so easy. I had to learn, I learned to cut my teeth there. Like I learned like some of the stuff that I teach, I, I don't even give all of it out, but the stuff I teach my guys in house, like I'm, I became a weapon there, like as far as sales. And that's where I learned yeah. a lot of the stuff that techniques that's helped me grow, um, absolute airflow so quickly. And you would eventually leave to start Absolute Airflow, or what, what was that process like? Yeah, we were, it was, uh, 2018. I think it was July. My little brother who works for me now, he's in the room with me here. He, uh, he started as a technician and, you know, we were, we were training him how to be a technician over at Home Comfort and they were just paying him like, like the way they paid their technicians was just embarrassing. They were always cutting the, they were always, the paychecks were never right. And my brother is like, you know, he's just trying to make ends meet. He's learning a new trade. He quit his job. He's got a little kid. He's trying to, he's trying to family. He's trying to support. And he, every week his paychecks are short. So, you know, he tells the owner like, Hey, this is crap. And so I told the owner, I said, Hey, stop, stop messing with my brother. or We're going to have some problems. Yeah. And he didn't stop. So at that point I was like, okay. And I, we were sitting at a pizza shop, my buddy's pizza shop one day and we were hanging out after work and my buddy's like, why don't you just start your own business? And I'm like, you know what? I should. And five days later, between August 3rd to August 8th, I started Absolute Airflow. So I guess yesterday was the day like I came up with the idea. And then five days later, we had a business. I had no business. I barely got my, I had no business license yet. I had no contractor's license. I was really just like, hey, I just quit my job making a lot of money. I was making almost a half a million dollars a year. Unreal. I quit my job and now all of a sudden I, I got to figure it out. And the funny thing is I, I told my brother, Hey, we're quitting today or we're going to quit. We're going to do this. 
well, he goes in and quits right away. I meant we were going to quit in a couple of days after I got my 10 grand bonus that I was owed. <laughs> so I was, I was hoping to get the bonus to help me start this business. And, but that, that didn't happen. And too soon. Yep. I don't, I don't regret it. At the end of the day, I, I hope he keeps his money because, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I have a really hard time with guys that are trying to start a business while working for somebody else. Right. It's pretty much stealing money. I couldn't do it. Like the day I decided we were going to start this business, I'm like, I can't be here. I can't do this. It's, I have to go focus on my thing. That's my thing. And I didn't really want to be there. So, you know, and there's a lot of people that will take three months of starting their own business, working on the other guy's dime, working half ass and doing it. And I really don't believe in that. I think that if you're going to do it, you know, go ahead, stop doing it on other people's dime and go be a man to do it on your own dime. So you start Absolute Airflow just under or right about four years ago. What has that company been through over the last four years from revenue and growth and talked about that journey? Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be four years next week on the, on the 8th of August. And, you know, we started out with a couple of guys, not knowing much. We operated the first three months we operated, operated out of my friend's pizza shop parking lot. So we had a, a really old box truck. We met at the box truck every morning at the shop. We called it our parking lot. And, you know, day one, I was just trying to get calls on the board. You know, I, because I had always made great relationships my whole life. I was always really a really outgoing person. I always knew a lot of people. I took my phone and I texted everybody on my phone. Hey, I started an AC company. And the first person to respond was actually somebody in my, uh, my fantasy football league. I've never even met the guy. It was, but it was my buddy's college friend that was in there. He's like, Hey, my air, my air conditioner's not working. So, you know, being as like, I get there and I'm like, okay, I have to sell this thing. Cause I got bills to pay. So <laughs> So, and it, he needed a new one and uh, his name is Nate. That was our first customer at Absolute Airflow. And, and ever since then, it just kind of snowballed. You know, I, I think when we were starting out, uh, I didn't know how to market. I didn't have a license, so I was really scared to do any marketing, right? So I had to really kind of keep it word of mouth. And then I think the first marketing source we did was Yelp. And because Yelp, you don't have to have a license to set up. Uh, and then you find, then I found out you can do uh, Syncrity financing without a license. So I, I got Syncrity financing and and uh, kind of worked our way up. So our our first three months in business, we did about nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars in revenue. So from August August till the end of the year, almost a million dollars. Year our first calendar year, we did over just a little under five million. So we did four point nine five million. Uh, so we grew really fast. And then heading into two thousand twenty, obviously COVID hit. All these weird things happened. We still hit about. I want to say 14, 15 million that year, which is, you know, pretty crazy considering we almost went out of business when COVID hit because we just weren't ready for it. Yeah. Last year we, you know, I made some, I made an acquisition end of 2020 and going into last year, you know, I was really excited. I had over a hundred employees and, you know, by the time we got done with summer, the summer wasn't what we thought it was going to be. I didn't have the calls I thought I was going to have. And I almost grew broke. So I almost went out of business in um, probably September, October, my accountant came to me and said, Hey Vic, you're out of cash. And I was like, well, we better figure it out. And being a sales guy, I know how to sell my way out of a lot of problems. And, and that's kind of what I did. I put my head down, sold my way out of the problems, got back current with my vendors, did a lot of things on that end. And then, you know, this year, you know, was just learning myself and learning the business and learning how to make money. So this year we're pacing for about 18 to $20 million and very, very profitable, um, which is the most important, like my hat says EBITDA, right? So we're, we're probably, we're going to be probably three and a half to 4 million in EBITDA this year after last year where we almost lost our business. Now, most people know you through absolute airflow, but people know you through other ventures you've started over the years. So I'm trying to wrap my mind around the fact that absolute airflow is only four years old. And in the middle of that, you started a training company and a coaching company and you're doing events. So talk about 
all of the things you were doing in addition to Absolute Airflow during that period of time, 2018 to 2022? Well, and like I said, my, my background is sales and I'm very good at it. And I was always really good at training my guys how to do sales. And I remember in uh, 2020, uh, me and my partner Garrett started a, a marketing agency called you know, Service Hero Marketing. And when we started it, we found out, we realized really quickly, like, hey, these, because we we did the marketing on my own company first and Garrett's company. So Garrett's company did $2 million off of just the Facebook ads. And then Mm -hmm. I started, and my company was doing, was crushing it. So we figured, you know, we do this for other companies and we turn it on and they're going to get leads and they're going to make money. What we found was that the industry really lacked any formal sales process or training and, and, and you bet you used to work for a marketing agency. You could send them, you could send X company, a hundred leads and, you know, a company, a hundred leads and one company sells a bunch of them and is happy. And the other company sells nothing and they're pissed off. Right. And we found there was a big hole in it. So that's when I was like, okay, well, what can I do to help it? And, you know, obviously people have been following my social media journey with my business. So I said, Hey, anybody that's interested to come see what I do as far as a sales process at absolute airflow would be interested fly out to my facility. I'll have a two day training. Yep. I, I sold it out in 10 minutes and I'm like, Oh, I think it was like $2,500 a ticket. And within, I think we had 20 people the first class and we sold it out instantly. Okay. We ran the class and the feedback I got, they're like, and these are some people that have been doing this their whole lives. They're like, I've never, ever, ever, ever seen anybody do what you're doing. Like, this is not normal. And I said, look, this is my process. I follow. This is how I generate money. This is how I grew my business. And this is the stuff that I use day in and day out as a technician and salesman. And it kind of snowballed from there. And uh, I'm like, how can I do this more on a mass scale? And mm-hmm. and I sit in there and I'm I'm like scrolling through my phone and I'm like, I got an idea. So I texted, uh, texted a couple people, one my partner and a bunch of other people. I said, you know, do you think, would you buy an app, uh, an app if I put every one of my, all my training materials, everything that I do it all into one app where you can watch videos and, and see it uh, real time. Yeah. And everybody said, if you make it, I'll buy it. And I said, okay, well I'm an entrepreneur and, and I'm like, okay, well I'm going to build it then. So I didn't know what it took to build an app. I didn't know, we didn't know obviously how the cost of it, the cost associated was going to be with filming. Um, also the amount of time it was going to take away from focusing on my business. Uh, so obviously if you don't focus on, if you don't focus on something, it starts to fade. Right. So, you know, a lot of the struggles we had last year were because of hero were because of my training were because of the app, right. Because I was so focused on trying to build this thing out that, that it took me away from what I was really doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's one of my regrets is not really planning it out that well and, and everything. But yes, yeah, so we, we launched the service hero Academy app and it's grown. We have over 2000 users on it, probably more than that now that are using it every month. And, you know, we got training in there, we have certificates, we have a bunch of stuff that they can, they can go in there and learn how to sell at a very, very high level where they're not going to get that training anywhere else. Uh, because I don't personally know any trainer on the market that trains everything that I do. They just, they're just, it's a different, it's a different level of, of communication, a different level of thinking about sales. There's guys that have like a process. I got a process for every little thing and, and I knew exactly how to attack every house. And that's what I teach inside the app. I've had the opportunity to sit through at least one of your trainings and, um, you know, the audience was very captivated taking notes and I found your approach very common sense and very, very rational. Can you break down some of the steps in your process that you teach just a little bit for listeners? Well, you know, a lot of people think it's like, I'm trying to teach more of, um, 
more of like, oh, uh, persuasion, using persuasion and using fancy words. And, and it's the opposite. I teach them a actual process to get the customer engaged and get the customer to believe that it's their decision to do something right. Mm-hmm. You know, just by asking the right question, getting the customer involved, you know, you know, as showing them what we're going to do. Like I always like to really paint the picture for the customer, what, what's in it for me, right? Cause no one cares about what's in it for you. They care about what's in it for themselves. So we start talking about, you know, things that we can improve their life and things that are, you know, things they're going to do it differently. Hey, you know, I always like to bring up like, well, the other company didn't tell me that, right? Well, you know, Paul, I've been doing this long enough. And if the company doesn't talk about it while, they're in your, while you're there in the home, they're probably not going to do it. Would you agree? Right. Cause if you're going to do something, you'd be really proud about it. So you get the customer really thinking like, oh man, the other guy, yeah, maybe he isn't doing that. Maybe he is cutting that corner, things like that, that really get the customer like really thinking. And then, you know, I just like to be very thorough. Like, I, I guess it's, it's hard to really jump into this because every process is different, but my specialty is the tune-up process. So right. I teach, I can teach a technician how to take a, you know, a 10, 10 year old tune up or a free, a free tune up and how to turn that into a 10, 15, 20, $30,000 sale is that that's kind of what my specialty is, is, is really teaching them high level questions to ask when to ask it, why to ask it and all of it, like everything in my process, the beginning of it lead is everything inside the process is leading to where you get to the table and it's not your choice for your decision to replace it. That customer is saying, Hey, how much is a new one? When can we get this done? And that's what I, I really focus on. So the, the name of this podcast is change your filter and it means a lot of different things to different people. But one of the main intentions behind the name is to just confront areas in your life or in your thinking that are clouded by, you know, and own your own, you know, predisposed filter or way of viewing things. And, and when I went to your training, I was expecting it to feel a little icky. I was expecting it to feel a little salesy. I was expecting there to be more of an emphasis on like persuasion and fear. And what I found was it was very common sense. You walk the customer to the electrical panel and you show them what no one else showed them and you teach them and you let them make a decision if they want to do a business with your company or theirs. I was delighted. It was cool. Yeah. And I always, you know, and one of the things I always say in almost every call is like, look at, I don't care if you go with me or anybody else, but when I leave here, you're going to be more educated than you were before. And I just wanted mm-hmm. my main goal today is make sure you have, you make an educated decision on whatever you buy, whether it's me or someone else. And I found that it takes a guard down and I'm really big at like kind of throwing my hands up in the air. So like I do this, like probably I throw my hands up, like probably 10 times a call. I'm just mm-hmm. like, Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but my job is to educate you and you can decide what you want to do with the information or not, you know? And really getting that customer to understand that I'm, I'm your friend, I'm on your side. But if I don't show you this, would you be more mad if I showed you or if I didn't show you? Right. And then all of a sudden something broke down and the customer was like, well, I'll be more mad if you you know, didn't tell me it broke down. I said, okay, cool. So are you still mad at me for educating you? And most of the time they just shut up. (laughs) So when you look at, you know, you only have so many hours in the day and you're, you're limited by, you know, both space and time. When you look at growing absolute airflow or growing your training business, which one excites you the most? Which one do you see yourself moving into as you get toward the back half of your thirties? Can't believe you're that young. Yes. Still 33, man. But I, you know, I, I think I got a, I got a good run with me in absolute. I think that's where my focus is going to go. Um, that's where it's been, um, for, for a little while now. Yeah. Um, obviously the training, the training stuff's important. I only do, the only training I do now is I do two hours a week on zoom training. So I have about 50 companies or so that join me every week for that. 
Mm-hmm. I do Zoom training every week, and that's pretty much the extent of my training. Obviously, I do podcasts and stuff like that, but most of my day is is focused on on getting absolute in the best shape, getting absolute, you know, making sure the processes are dialed in, making sure we're making money. Whereas before, I was really traveling a lot and doing training, and that was really putting a toll on my business and my family. So my my main focus now is. Hey, I'm going to do my training. I want to give back to the community, to the industry, which I do through the trainings that I do. And then, you know, that's two hours a week and that's what I could commit to it. When you are successful and when you are vocal, that naturally draws haters. There's a lot of trainers out there. There's a lot of just people in the industry with opinions. Why do you have haters and what are those people saying? And, and talk to me about what it's like to have a target on your back sometimes. And, you know, a lot of it is, is, it was self-induced, right? So, you know, as you said, when I was starting out, you know, if you talk to me three years ago and talk to me now, whether it's on Facebook or in person or anything, I'm not, I'm not the guy that they, they really hate anymore, I guess. Uh, but yeah. everybody has their opinion at that point. And I was very brash and I, I've called a lot of people out. I think one of the things that I do is like, I genuinely give a shit about people and when I see people that are snakes and, and thieves and I call them out and they don't like it. Right. And they have big mm-hmm. voices too. But if you're robbing and stealing from people in the industry, I'm not going to shy away. And I never have, I've never robbed, never stole freaking anything from anybody. I, I try to provide the lowest cost I possibly can on all my services. Obviously I got to get paid for my time, but I do everything very affordably. I'm not out there just price gouging people. I'm not out there taking advantage of people. I'm not training people on things on how to manipulate customers and lie to customers or anything like that. It's just when I see that stuff, it's a stain on the industry. And and those are the kind of people that I I can't stand. And if you're going to be like that, okay, cool. I, I have, everybody has dirty laundry, but I can tell you my dirty laundry is what it is. Like it's not, it's not me lying and stealing from people. And a lot of those guys, they, they, they have internalized that they, they, that's who they are and they have to live with that. I don't have to live with that. Yeah. It's in, it's incredibly low hanging fruit in the industry to use fear tactics with homeowners. And it, it just, it makes, you know, me uncomfortable having a, been being raised by a single mom and, you know, having her go through those things. It's just brings the entire industry down. You know, I had, a, I had a technician that lied to a customer recently and, you know, obviously I had to let him go. It's just not how yeah. we operate here. There's too much honest work out there to be, you know, to, to be able to, to have to lie to people. And the same thing with the coaching stuff, man, it's like a lot of these people do not genuinely have the customer's best interest at heart. Like they don't mm-hmm. care about the company. They don't care. They would rather take their hundred thousand dollar check today. And if the company goes out of business tomorrow, they don't care. Right. I've been to places where I've done training. I've done an onsite and, and I don't really talk about it. I went to go to an onsite and they paid me for it. And when I left there, I gave them the money back mm-hmm. because they had bigger problems in sales training. They had right. bigger problems. And people think that sales training is going to fix your problems and it doesn't. You could sell your way into being more broke. So a lot of companies realize, don't realize that they're paying these sales trainers when realistically they need, they need to look internalize and look at their business or operation and learn what's going on with it. It's not the sales. It's the operation that's messed up. And I think, I think that guy was the guy that I did that to. He was like, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, I I spent three days with his guys. I got his guys excited. I got him selling stuff and I gave him his money back. I said, look, dude, you got to, I, I was here and I watched your operation. You're going to go out of business if you don't fix that. And that's the kind of person I am. And I don't really talk about it much, you know, and, and, you know, if you've ever really known me, I've given back to a lot of people, a lot of people. I've helped a lot of people. Every time you see one of those people that gets injured and asks for GoFundMe, if you look, you look on the line item, there's usually me sending a thousand bucks to these people I don't even know. 
or there's me giving away, I've given away over 35 free systems to, to needy families and needy people over the last four years. There's stuff that I don't really talk about much, but that's yeah. who I really am. And that's who I'm really trying to highlight going forward is not highlight the, the brodacious me or the braggadocious guy. I just highlight who I really am. And genuinely, I, I give back to everybody. And, and if you really talk to people that know me, you know, I have clients that I'm reaching out to asking how their family is, how their mom's doing. That's, that's what I care about. I'm not just reaching out every conversation is trying to sell people stuff. That's just not me. Yeah. We're going to go back in a moment here to your childhood. We're going to have a question in between to prepare you for that. But talk to me about your relationship with Bill Pulte. I couldn't have picked a more unusual pair. So Bill Pulte, the heir to the Pulte homes business and Victor Rancor. How did that partnership come together it's pretty funny um i didn't know who he was uh, uh, i thought his name was pult i didn't know how to say i didn't know how Fair. to pronounce his last name um he reached out to me on facebook and started messaging me and i blew him off i didn't know who he was and i got some random dude messaging me asking me about my business and stuff like that and asking me about me and i'm I get a million messages a day. Like if you actually go through my Facebook messenger, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I respond to every one of them, which is, you know, part of my, my stick too is like, people are like, Oh my gosh, like this guy actually will respond. Right. But I responded to bill and I started talking to him. He started asking me about my business and, and being who I was like at that point I was scrambling because my business was failing and I didn't want to tell anybody. So mm -hmm. I was just like, yeah, we're doing great and doing all this and that and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and we weren't, we weren't doing good. We, I didn't even know we weren't doing good because I didn't right. pay attention, close enough attention anyways. I just knew that we were selling stuff, but I knew that I wasn't making any money. And, um, and so, you know, I started talking to him and we kept going back and forth and, and finally he's like, well, send me some financials. I want to see, and I said, look, I'll be kind of square with you. Like we're not doing good. Right. So, you know, talk to him and he showed me, he said, look, you know, this is my track record. I've saved, you know, I've grown and sold these businesses. I've done this and that. And I said, and I was like, okay, well, he's like, I'm interested in you. I'd like to, you know, obviously he's like, you seem like, you know, talking to you, like you are a straight up guy. It's just that we have to, you know, you need, you need some work, right? You need to, you need to figure out the business side. So, uh, he came out to my business and, you know, we, we partnered, you know, just a small, he's a minority partner in my business. Yeah. And, he came in and day one, he started pointing out, dude, he's like, dude, these people, you're getting treated like a basketball player or a, or a, uh, a football player or a rapper that's got all this whole posse around him. That's milking you, milking you like a cow. He's like, you got all this money coming in, but if you really look at it, none of these people are working hard. None of these people are doing their jobs and they're just collecting these big salaries. So once I started opening my eyes and like, Oh man, I really don't, these people are really taking advantage of me. And it still happens to this day. Like I, you know, I still try to, I have to keep pushing guys or they'll, they'll take advantage of me. They'll get paid to not even do anything half the day. So it just started really focusing on it, going through my organizational chart. And he just kind of taught me how to be a businessman. Like Bill, Bill's taught me how to be, because I'm such a, like, I'm a giver. I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And he's like, no, you got to start being a businessman and start looking at that stuff. So me and him became real close and he's taught me a lot about business and a lot about life and about money and, and how to become like, he, he, he thinks just like a lot of people think he's like, man, he's, he's like, you're special. You just have to realize it. you have to, you have to take it and you got to figure out what you want and make it happen. He's like, he's like, I've watched, he's like, I've watched, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs over the years. And he's like, there's no one that's I've seen that's as driven as you that has the ability and skill set 
but you just have to focus, right? So he's really helped me a lot on uh, focusing on what's important and focusing on how to grow these businesses. And, you know, from there, me and him kind of partnered together and, and we started, you know, uh, partnering with other HVAC companies because my processes inside the home and, and inside the business on how to generate revenue, how to actually grow these companies is great. I still, and I, and I, it's going to happen one day. I, people are going to start respecting me as an operator in these HVAC businesses because I'm a great operator and I know how to be a great leader. And it's, you know, before it's all said and done, there's, I don't think there's going to be a better operator in this industry than me. Um, I'm just learning. Right. So, you know, once I, once I, I teach these guys, my processes of what we do inside the building and all that stuff. And, you know, Bill comes in and helps with the financial controls and, and the high level finance stuff. And we bring in some of the other, you know, proprietary stuff that we do with these companies. And now we're all of our partners are for the most part are tripled revenue, tripled profits, uh, and making, you know, they're, they're growing these great businesses. You know, some of them went from 3 million a year to 15 million a year in less than 12 months. Oh. Right. So that's kind of what we're doing. And, you know, me and Bill are, we're kind of opposite. You know, he's very, yeah. he's a numbers guy. He's a finance guy. He's a private equity guy. So he's, he's, uh, he doesn't put a lot of emotion into money. His money is his emotion. If the money's coming out, then he's happy and the money's going down. He's not happy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'm the, I'm like more of the emotion guy. Like I'm the one that's creates the relationships with most of the people and, and tries to help as much as I can. So it's, it's been a good relationship so far. I often want, this is a tangent, but I often wonder what it must be like to be someone like Bill, who people naturally will not give the benefit of the doubt and naturally have higher expectations and specific expectations because he was born into a family like he was born into. I mean, the guy can't give away money on Twitter without people like calling him out negatively for it. So it must be a interesting dilemma. You know, and someone asked me the other day how Bill was doing and I said, well, you know what, Bill, Bill woke up rich again today. So I think he's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, thinking about, you know, 2018 to 2020, you know, you're obviously, you've got a lot of humility to talk about the errors you made or um, the lack of focus that led to some issues, you know, in 2021 or whatever, but most people never make it <laughs> to those issues. Most people never make it up and off the ground. Um, who were the people advising you in those early days? Like who was in your corner that helped you kind of get the the ship going? Nobody. Yeah, it was me. I was, it was driving 150 miles an hour blind. (laughs) So I had an idea of what HVAC companies should look like. I had an idea how they should run. I had an idea of the, the sales process in the house, but I was the sole driver. I, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the mistakes I made was not talking to other people, people that had done it before asking them questions like, what should I be doing? I was overpaying everybody. I was, you know, doing all the things that you're not supposed to do, right? Not I didn't know I didn't know my overhead. I didn't know I didn't know how to put a read a PL. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. All I knew how to do was create revenue. Mm-hmm. And I'm very good at that, but I didn't and then obviously when you start having success and you sell a lot, you do all this. Well, I just kept hiring people, like hiring to hire people. I had people on top yeah. of people doing other people's jobs. Like, what was I doing? You know, if I would have known now. No, then what I know now, I'd be, I'd be so stupid rich, it'd be dumb. But I have to, I'm still paying for mistakes I made three, four years ago. So, you know, I think that was one of the big mistakes. So if you are starting out, just get a mentor early, man. Just get to somebody that's done it. Just talk to them. You know, I have a, I got a buddy of mine. I won't mention his name, but I've been telling him, I saw him from day one. I told him, you're going to, you're going to, you're, you got to, you got to fix this now. You got to fix this now. And he, he keeps like, pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off. And I said, by not, if you don't fix this now, by the end of the summer, you're going to run out of money. And I get a, get a message from him. I started seeing him posting on social media. I see him all sad. I say, Hey, what's going on, bud? 
He's like, oh, you know, this and that. And I was like, well, I said, how's the cash balance? He says, us. I'm like, okay, how's your, uh, how's your balance sheet looking? Well, you know, I owe some vendors and this. I said, hey, brother, I told you this was going to happen. I told you in February, by, by September, you're going to be broke. And are you broke? He's like, yeah. I said, do you want to listen yet? Or do you want to keep beating, beating yourself over the head? Cause he reminds me of myself. He like, he identical to how I thought, oh yeah, no matter what they say, I can figure it out myself. I want to do this myself. And I've been telling him, I'm like, dude, you're going to run yourself ragged. And that's exactly what he has. Now he's, you know, he's fighting with his family. He's dealing with money issues, all this stuff. But it, it, it's just, it's our ego as men that we don't know how to just accept help. But if you can mm -hmm. accept help early, um, it's great. But if you want to really grow a business, you got to be a driver too. Like I was a self-starter. I'm a self-starter. That's just my, 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 my color code is, is, is red. And I just, like, I just know how to, I know how to build things and it's just learning how to, ex how to put processes in place. Just kind of like Ken Goodrich. I was listening to his book the other day and it's like the same thing, man. It's like, I can make all this stuff happen, but if I don't put processes and stuff in place, then it's just going to become a mess. How's your relationship with Ken? It's funny, man. Um, you know, I still remember you know, I get a, I was in my office. It was, uh, January 30th, 2020. And my Goodman reps like, Hey, I got, um, I'm going to come by right now. I got something I got to tell you all excited. I'm like, Oh, cool. I didn't know what they were going to do or what, what he was going to do. He comes to my office. He's like, how would you like to go to the Super Bowl?" And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> I've never been to the Super Bowl. Like, I'd, yeah, hell yeah. I want to go to the Super Bowl, you know? And so, you know, I said, they're like, oh, Goodman's going to send you the Super Bowl. And they're like, well, you're going to fly with Ken Goodrich. Well, obviously we know what Ken was trying to do. He, he reached out, he had an opportunity of who he wanted to bring with him. Right. And mm -hmm. it was supposed to be Ishmael actually. And which he really pissed off Ishmael with all the things we had going on at that time. It was supposed to be Ishmael going because Ken was really trying to get bigger in California, but Ken started seeing me post on social media. So he's like, well, maybe I can get, you know, bring this guy. in." So, mm -hmm. You know, next thing I know, I'm on a private jet flying to the Super Bowl with Ken Goodrich, and it's a whole different side of the world that I never, you know, never imagined being part of, you know. And, yeah. you know, we fly out where we, we go, or I'm in this big old Airbnb, mansion Airbnb, then all the next thing I'm on a 100-foot yacht going to a private island for a for a concert, uh, and then we're sitting on the stage. Who's hosting this? Us. Is it Goodman or Good, Ken? I guess technically Goodman, but I think, you know, it's Ken's card, part yeah. of Ken's deal that he has with them, and he gets the Super Bowl every year, right? Got it. Yep. So I'm on a, I'm on a stage in Miami, Super Bowl weekend. Post Malone is about five feet away from me playing on the stage. I got Cuba Gooding Jr. passed out at our, at our table. I'm taking shots with, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Is there as well. All these famous people. And, and I've never experienced anything like this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see what the whole other side of the world lives like. I mean, we, I remember the second night we went back to the, to another club. We took the, we took the yacht back out to the club. And we get there, we showed up late and Ken has his booth. He has a specific seat inside this club on the stage, right next to the stage. We get there and Kyle Bush is sitting in our chair, the, the NASCAR driver. So Ken oh, yeah. walks up and this is when Ken was big Ken before he, he lost big all Ken. his weight, like five, six months ago, or six later or whatever it was. And this is big Ken, big Ken walks up, licks his lips, <laughs> so waves the security over. He's like, Hey, get this guy out of my chair. And that's what I knew. I'm like, oh, this guy is gangster. Like he literally just kicked yeah. Kyle Bush out of a out of a VIP suite. And not only did he kick him out, as he walked out, he put the little rope behind him. Click. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that was the first time I really hung out with Ken, and got to got to really meet him and stuff. But you know, we do text back and forth every once in a while. 
I do want to thank him for getting me kicked out of Vegas. Uh, so when me and Brent Buckley called, uh, started our business, he, he called the license board and got us kicked out of Vegas pretty quick. Oh, interesting. What, how did, what was the backlash on that? So me and Bill and Brent, uh, Brent, uh, we're, we're starting an absolute airflow in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'm in the process of getting my license and we decided to pull the trigger and start working a couple of weeks early. And, uh, we tried to keep it on the down low, but obviously word started swirling around real fast. You know, Ken's, Ken's friends with the, um, I think his family members on the license board there. So, you know, Brent gets a call We're I'm in, I'm in California, so I'm safe. They can't do anything to me. Bill's in Florida and Brent's the only one on the ground in Vegas. The license board calls Brent and like tells him, Hey, you could be doing prison or jail time and all this stuff and scared the living out of Brent. Right. And we don't know. Most people don't know this story. There was just such a blip in time. This is about a year ago. It was like a three week period, but we had something special that everybody was scared. Everybody in that market was like, Holy, this guy's coming here to kill us. Right. Mm -hmm. And we did, we did a quarter million dollars in sales in our first two weeks in business from scratch, nothing, no customer list, no nothing. We just started marketing and we did a quarter million dollars in sales and then shut it down like that. And it was over. And then that's when, you know, Brent ended up going with Tom Howard and ended up, you know, building that, you know, great company, Fetchatech. But it was supposed that Fetchatech was supposed to be absolute airflow. And we should have been the one. Yeah. So that's that was we we had already I'd already had started looking for GMs and, and managers and all these things that we were about to start building. I already rented a big building. I had already moved like a fleet of trucks out there. We already had freaking twelve trucks or something like that in Vegas. I had moved from my California branch. Like I had done the like if anybody saw the amount of stuff that I put in the work that I put into where I built a business, I had a, I had the website live, I had Google live, I had Yelp live, I had PPC running, I had everything done within, within one week. We had an up and running business and making money. Moving Kyle Bush from the booth is junior varsity. Getting you shut down in Vegas is gangster. Oh, he's gangster, dude. So any hard feelings from that? I mean, you seem very, um, you know, you don't seem like very dramatic about that. Well, you know. I didn't lose my money. I lost Bill's money. So it's a little bit more painful when you lose some, when you lose your own money. So, you know, Bill likes to give me crap on it. He's like, why do you talk about that? Lost my money. At the end of the day, man, it's, um, it's really, it's everything that I've, everything that's happened has been a learning experience. I wasn't ready for Vegas. I wasn't, I, my house, my built, my own business was a house of cards at that time. Right. So it was, it was pretty much God saying, Hey dude, slow down, get your, in order. But, you know, like I said, I'm 33 and I think that I'm going to be a force to deal with for a long time in this industry. And I think that, you know, that's, that was just another learning curve, uh, another time and place and just stuff that I have to live, live on and move on from, you know? Well, before we go forward, we're going to go back. So you're in a reflective period of your life right now. It sounds like making a lot of progress and there's a lot of growth. When you think back to your childhood, what are some events in your childhood that formed or shaped some of your just life over the last couple of years? What are some things you've learned from? Well, you know, the stuff I've been doing, like the reflection over the last, you know, couple of months, you start looking back in your life and you try to figure out what, what makes you tick, what makes you do certain things, what makes you have like just things you do and you don't know what it's from. Right. Mm-hmm. And I start looking back and some of these things that I thought were were really cool experiences when I was a kid or cool things that happened. If I really look back, they were actually traumatic. They were mm-hmm. actually 
caused a lot of my issues that I deal with today. So, you know, I grew up, my mom was the oldest of eight kids. Uh, my grandparents, you know, my grandma and my, I guess he'd be my step grandpa moved from, moved to eight kids from Cle or I guess at that time, there was only six kids, uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, moved them out to California. You know, at that point, you know, my mom is the oldest of the eight. Um, I wasn't born yet. So they, they started growing up in Baldwin Park, California. They were the pretty much the only white family in the neighborhood. It was all Hispanic. Uh, for the most part. And then, you know, eventually I came along a couple of years later. Um, so like my youngest, my youngest uncle is only five years older than me. Okay. So yeah. growing up, I was like the, I was like the littlest brother. Right. And because mm-hmm. I was the first, you know, really the first grandkid born my, well, my, I had another cousin that was put up for adoption. He's tall like you too. He's like six, eight, but he was put up for adoption. He was born like two weeks or a week before me. So I was really the oldest of the, of the, of the, the new kids in the family. So, you know, growing up around my uncles, you know, being so close in age, you really look up to them. Right. And a lot of the stuff they were doing was not stuff that you should look up to. And I didn't really realize it as a kid, like, you know, my uncles are gang members, drug dealers, and, and just, you know, overall, just not good people yeah. uh, growing up. And, and these are the people that I really idolized and I really wanted to be like, and I always wanted to be around and, you know, you know, always watching them drinking and partying and stuff like that. And that was kind of how my life was, you know, growing up, you know, my, I didn't know my biological dad and we can kind of jump into that a little bit. Yeah. My, my dad that raised me is my dad. He raised me since I was one years old. Him and my mom met on a, on a California freeway and he was in his convertible and they pulled over to grab a beer. And I was only one years old at that point, I think, or a little bit less than one years old. And then my brother, my brother's a year and a half younger than me. So obviously that timeline was pretty quick. Uh, but he raised me, he raised me, um, you know, and I think that was, you know, one thing I'm reflecting on now is that like, he raised me. He's probably, he's one of the best people you'll ever meet. Like he's a loving dad. He, he really he taught us a lot of, uh, great values and stuff, but a lot of the values that he was teaching us was hard for him to compete with my uncles that I look up to, you know, mm. where, you know, I should have been looking up more to him and I was looking up more to the degenerate side, I guess. Right. And, you know, obviously I lost my dad last year, so I've been able to reflect a lot on that. Um, so so yeah, so growing up, I, you know, my house was the life of the party. So, you know, a lot of people are like, man, you always throw in these big events and big parties. And I was so used to having our house was the party house. Everybody came there, all my uncles, my neighbors, everybody was always partying. We had the pool, we had all this stuff. It wasn't like a, you know, a super nice house. We didn't grow up in this super nice neighborhood, but it was a middle-class neighborhood. And we were the ones that had the pool. Mm-hmm. And, my, and my mom is a partier. So she was always, she's like me, that's always outgoing and meeting people and, and always like to have people around. So we always did have people around. So I was surrounded by partying and drinking since I was a little kid. And that was, you know, looking back now, I'm like, man, it was a great, it was so much fun growing up. Like we, we got to just have a great time and we, me and my brother ran amok and all the neighborhood kids and stuff, but we were really just had real bad influence. We think that's how we thought adults should be. Adults should be partying. Adults should be drinking. Adults should be, you know, not paying attention to their kids. And that's just how I was raised. And, and now just sitting back, I'm just like, man, that's just not how it should be. It's just Mm -hmm. not how, that's not how a kid should be raised. That's, you know, it was fun as a kid, but it really is traumatic to what it can happen in the long term of being around that kind of environment. You know, my, you know, my uncle took his own, my uncle took his own life when, when I was like 17 and that was really traumatic to me. And then from there, my, my family really spiraled even worse and, they were buying, you know, I was, I was a kid. My uncles are buying me alcohol and, and, you know, letting us throw parties and doing all this stuff that is like, yeah, that's not really a good role model. <laughs> so, right. 
so yeah, so that's how that happened. And, you know, and, and it's led to me, it's, it's allowed me to be who I am. And it's, it's created this like, you know, really rambunctious and outgoing person and it created a lot of personality. But I remember growing up, I was never like them. I always had it, you know, everybody always said when I walked in a room, like I was a light, like I always, mm. I was such a caring, loving kid. And I just kind of got tainted over the years on, on, on how I should act and stuff. And I'm really just trying to get back to who I really am, I guess, inside. You were recently reunited with your birth father. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. So, you know, my biological dad, um, I never, I, I didn't know his name until I was like 10 years old. And I still remember the day I found out what his name was. And I was like, oh, thank God I didn't take his last name. So I remember I was out to play football. You had to get your birth certificate. I lost mine. So we we're going to play Pop Warner football and we had to go down to the courthouse to get a birth certificate. And we get the birth certificate. And it says my biological dad name, dad's name on it. I didn't know if his name was Paul or George because he, you know, it was always opposite. So my middle name is Paul. So that's where I, it's, I would call him Paul. But his real name was George Paul uh, Skinder. So my last name should have been should have been Skinder. So Victor Skinder would have been not good. Okay, I just I'm not into skinning people. So thank God it took, my it took me a that. second. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, thank God to my mom for giving me at least giving me her last name and not naming me Skinder. So there's that. And, you know, I, I remember looking for him. I, I started looking for him really about 10 years ago when I moved back to California, I started putting a little effort in, um, obviously, you know, Google and all that stuff and social media is growing at that point. And 10 years ago, I found a George Paul Skinder and he's in prison. So I knew that my dad had went to prison when I was a kid, but I didn't really know the story. So I found George Paul Skinder and I found him on a, a, a pen pal, a pen pal website where you can, you know, and you can pen pal inmates. So I'm thinking yeah. I'm pen palling my dad and it wasn't my dad. It was actually my brother and wow. I had a brother and he, and my brother's a, guess what? He's six months younger than me or older than me, seven, six or seven months older than me. So I'm like, that's really weird. I couldn't really ever figure out the timeline and he could never really explain it to me either because my dad never really talked to him about it. So I found my brother in prison and I started going back and forth and he sent me the very first picture I ever saw of my dad, right? And it was this black and white photo he had sent me. And he's like, yo, dad's probably, he's probably dead by now. He's got cancer. We haven't really heard from him or seen from him. So I figured, you know, and he's like, dad's a piece of shit. And I'm just like, at that point, I'm like, okay, well, at least I got a little closure. I got a brother. He started, the brother started asking me for money. And, and when people start asking me for money, I usually shut down. <laughs> uh, cause you know, cause he knew I was, you know, was doing a little bit obviously better than he was. He's in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And which is crazy. He's a, he's actually a six foot seven ginger. And so that's kind of funny. Redheaded. Yeah. Red big six foot at some redheaded dude. He's, he's in prison for a long time for some other yeah. stuff, but I never met him obviously. So anyways, it kind of went by and I just figured I'm just never going to see him. He probably died. Like I'm just, in, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm imagining this guy is living on the streets, drug addict or on, you know, whatever. That's how I'm imagining my dad. And then about two years ago, I found him on Facebook and and I found him and I saw him and I was like, okay. And my mom, my mom had started talking to him and I didn't know about it. And I was really at, at that point, it's like, oh, hey, you know, I exist. You know, I'm right there. Why aren't you man enough to reach out to me and talk to me? And I was like, look, I don't feel like I should have to be the man to reach out to you. Like you've already wasted this many years not doing it. And finally he didn't respond. And I, my mom's like, oh, Paul really wants to talk to you. Or, you know, George really wants to talk to you. And I was like, well, if he really wants to talk to me, he can stop being a freaking, and he can reach out mm -hmm. to me and be a man because he's been a, for a long time. And my mom was like, oh, wow. And so she told him that. And 
I guess that finally resonated with him. And he calls me one day and it was a Saturday. I was headed to the farmer's market and I had stopped at a seven 11 to grab something. And I get a phone call from Boston calls me. I ignore it. Calls me again. I ignore it. Calls me a third time. I'm like, God, what the hell do you want? And so I answer the phone. And the first thing he says is, uh, um, he says, Hey, that air conditioner you sold me is on fire on my roof. And I said, why are you calling me? Call the fire department. Who is this? And that was my first reaction. Like, don't call me brother. Call the fire department, put the fire out. <laughs> and, and he's like, Oh, I'm just kidding. It's your dad. I'm like, Oh, you are smart ass. Just like me. I'm like, how does that happen? Wow. Uh, so that was the first, that was the first conversation I ever had with him. And then, you know, we, it's weird because, you know, I grew up with my, my dad that raised me. And, and like I said, I love him to death and, and I miss him every freaking day. And, you know, that was, he was a big part of when we started absolutely there for, he was working for me, but it's weird because your biological dad is, is you, right? Like my brother and my dad are like the same mannerisms, the same way they walked away. They, they, they used to fight all the time. And, you know, as they you know got older, they finally started understanding they are the same person. And, and I think that was weird cause I've never had that before. I've never had someone that's like me and looks like me and walks like me and has mannerisms like me. And I think that was the biggest takeaway, you know, finally, uh, you know, we started talking finally and I said, Hey, look, you know, I want to meet you. So I, you know, I bought him a fly, I bought him and his, his fiance, a flight out here. I put him up in a nice hotel on the beach and, you know, I pretty much took a week off of work and, and just kind of showed him around and, and got to meet him and got to, got to know him and got to really find out the real story of why he disappeared. And, you know, he actually, so he was already married when he came out to California. He had just knocked up his wife. He came out to California for the summer to work for her, for his father-in-law to his wife's dad with his wife's dad meets my mom. They, the story is they literally hooked up one night at a Radisson hotel and I was made that night. And then he <laughs> took off back to Boston. And when he got back there, he didn't know my mom was pregnant with me. When he gets back, he gets in a DUI manslaughter. Hmm. So he ends up just killing a guy, disintegrating a guy in a, in a DUI accident. So he goes to prison for 10 years on this case. So he's got two kids that are born while he's in prison. Or I think my brother might've been born before he actually went to prison. So my brother was born in, in like March of 88 and I was born in October of 88. And by, by the beginning of the next year, he's in prison for 10 years. Wow. So, and obviously that's in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, there's, there's when you go to prison for 10 years, how are you going to find people? Like you could stay pen pals. But by that point, my mom had already found a new husband or a new, you know, already found a new boyfriend and kind of started moving on. So by the time he got out of prison, there's, how do you find people? Like, what do you, <laughs> what are you going to do? And he didn't know. And at that point, his wife at the point, at that point did not want him to find me. He knew I existed. My mom had pen paled him. So he, he had at least known I existed. But his wife's like, no, don't contact them. Just focus on your family. And then that was kind of the story for a lot of years. And finally, he's just like, I couldn't do it anymore. He's like, I really want to reach out. And I said, and I told him, see, obviously, because obviously it's like, uh, you ever seen the movie, The Water Boy? I have. And he's like, Bobby, it's your daddy. When he comes back at the end, after all of a sudden, he's an NFL player, right? And I was like, right. as I told him day one, I said, look, don't expect a freaking penny from me. It ain't ever going to happen. You're never going to get a dime out of me. So if you're thinking you're coming for the money, that ain't happening. So if you want to have a real relationship with me and, and my kids, I'll allow that because my kids at this point, my, my dad that raised me has passed away. Uh, my wife's dad's passed away. So they don't really have a grandpa in their life. So 
I said, if you want to be there and you want to actually be there for these kids and not like you were to me, then you'll have an opportunity to be in our, in our, in our life. But otherwise, if it's just about money, you just don't expect to ever see a penny from me. And so we, I, I led that, I led that ground rule really early. And, and so far it's been good. He's, he's really communicative. He really loves the grandkids. He, he really wants to move out to California. He's like, you know, he's really trying to find a job because he's, he's not, he's got cancer for the third time. Hmm. So he really wants to be around my, around my kids and stuff. So, um, so far so good. Um, you know, but he's still, he'll never be my dad. He'll be the guy, you know, be my sperm donor, but he's not my dad. You know what I mean? I think this is probably the third time, maybe second time I've referenced the name of this podcast being change your filter. And the idea is changing your mind on something and not being so, you know, you know, having your main, your, your mind made up for certain. And I remember when I first met you, Victor, it well met you online. That sounds weird, but became aware of you. I remember seeing a picture of you and you had hired some people. I think it was people away from Ishmael and you and a couple of technicians are standing by a van. And I, I believe there's some middle fingers thrown in the air. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's not good for the industry. What is this guy doing? Who does he think he is? And I just had my mind made up and I didn't think much of it, but I told myself who I thought you were based on that. And then a couple months went by and then I saw the picture of you and your dad and it reminded me not to make my, you and your birth father, you know, reuniting with your birth, birth father. And it reminded me not to take a snapshot of one person or one individual's, you know, story and extrapolate that out to be their whole identity. So it's the kind of the theme of my podcast is thinking of things differently. So my final question, and then I want to talk about your event in Vegas and I'll let you get back to work. You're in your mid thirties now, not even 35. When you look back on, you know, meeting your birth father and kind of that experience and, and, you know, the, the reality of him not being in your life when you're younger, do you have more or less grace, more or less forgiveness, knowing what it's like, just being a dad and, you know, choices and all those sort of things. Like what's, how's that experience play into how you feel today? So if I look back at it, he's the reason why I am a good dad. He's the reason why I put a lot of emphasis on my kids and why, you know, I, I told myself when I was a kid, I will, no matter what ever happens, I'm going to be there with my kids. There's no, there's no way. And I think that's what kind of weird, it's weird for me now as a dad, it's like, if I was him, there is no way on planet earth I'm waiting 33 years before I see my kid. This is not happening. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if I have no money. I don't care at all. I'm going to go find my kid. Like just, I just couldn't imagine. I can't, I can't even imagine when I go leave for an onsite for a couple of days being away from my kids, it makes me sick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's, you know, that was really hard for me to get over and, and think, but I'm like, realistically, he allowed me to, I got to see what a, what a, dad is like. So my dad that raised me, I got to see what it's like, you know, the day in and day out, just being there, no matter what, you know, he raised me like that dad raised me without, with just love, like from day one, like he treated me like he was, that was his own kid, hmm. you know? So I think I learned a lot from that. And I also just learned a lot from my dad, not being there of how I would never want to do that for my kids and how, you know, you know, a lot of stuff. So if you really think about it, you know, Paul, if you, and, and I've thought about it a lot over the last couple of months is what am I doing constantly? I'm constantly looking for acceptance. I'm constantly looking for attention as, you know, on my Facebook posts and in, in person, like this is how I've grown up. And those things happen because you're not accepted or you're not wanted or, or you have someone that you wanted to be there and you've always wanted to impress and he, he, you weren't good enough. And that's, I think that's a lot of the stuff that I act like. And I do is because, you know, it's how could someone not want me as their kid? Right. So there's a lot of stuff that I've, I've had to like really think about lately. And that's one of them is like, why do I, why do I care so much what other people think? Why do I 
care about being this. And a lot of it circles back to that, right? Your own dad doesn't want to be there and you just want to prove yourself all the time. So I think that that's kind of something I've realized a lot lately too. That's really wise. And I think it's really universal. Tough transition here, but I want to talk about, and I want to close out with a big event you've got coming up. I know about this event because I'm getting blasted with ads of everyone in the industry telling me that I need to be there. So tell me what's going on in Las Vegas in October. Yeah, man. And and this is, you know, probably one of the things I'll be known for too, is, is the events. So I still remember last year, you know, coming up with the idea, you know, I came up with the idea with the, for the event as my dad's dying last year. And, you know, a lot of stuff I, you know, I look back on like a lot of stuff I, I still do. It's like, I still haven't really coped with my dad passing away. I've definitely done a lot of stuff to just kind of bury it and, and have other things to worry about and think about like starting an app and starting this and buying this business and doing that and doing this. So, um, that's one of the things when I think about this event and I think about back, like, man, I wish I would have been more focused on that, but the events that I, you know, that I throw, I've always wanted it to be different. And anybody that came to my event last year knows it's different than the other industry events. You go to usually go to these trade shows and you, you're just there and people are trying to sell you stuff. There's no actionable stuff that you really get out of it. It's kind of boring. It's really drawn on speakers. They, you know, it's just not, it's not who you really want to be around. That's going to help you drive your business. So when I, when I started coming up with an idea how I wanted to throw these events, I wanted something different. I didn't want a pitch fest. I didn't want people that were just there to sell you stuff. I wanted people to come in, learn a bunch of stuff they can go back and implement immediately uh, in their business. And, and that's why I throw my events on a Friday and Saturday because mm-hmm. there's only there's only one day in between going home and getting back to work on Monday. So you can implement right away. So you do the you do the training on a Tuesday, Wednesday. You probably take the rest of the week off. You come back on Monday. By the time you get back on Monday, you've already forgot all the stuff. Yeah. So I really wanted to make it like a short period of time between the event and when you get back to work to make it more actionable. And then everybody that's on the stage for this event, I've already told them you are not allowed to pitch anything. This is not a pitch fest. This is you're going to come up there and bring in high level content and things that you think that your your content is actually helping. Uh, to help in their business. And that's what you're going to talk about. So everybody that comes up, there is a reason for it. Uh, I, I made it something for everybody inside your business. So you could be, the, it could be the owner. It could be the general manager. It could be the call center rep. It could be the sales rep, the technician. I have separate rooms and separate speakers that are going to speak to the, every single different person. Uh, so I have my sales room. I got, you know, Joe Cressera, who's obviously, you know, he's uncle Joe's fantastic at what he does at yeah. communication and stuff processes. He teaches, I got Jason Walker. His process has helped a lot of people throughout the country, brought in my mentor, Daniel Royce, who, who really taught me a lot of, about sales. And he's a $7 million a year sales guy in California with a $24,000 average ticket. Okay. Wow. You take, you take that guy, you put him in Vegas, he's selling 15 million a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's a whole different ball game when you, when you tell, I always tell people when you're dealing with California sales guys, it's a whole different ball game because we don't have weather. It's 75 right. degrees out right now. We're still selling $30,000 systems. So I got him in there teaching his process. And obviously I'm going to be in there. TJ is going to be there teaching sales processes. And then on the main stage, I have, you know, some amazing people. Obviously I have uh, Joe Montana, four time Super Bowl winner is going to be opening the event. So mostly usually like they save the headliner for the end of the event. Joe yeah. Montana's opening it. So I got our VIP breakfast. All the VIP guests are going to hang out with Joe Montana, get autographs in this private little room, uh, breakfast area, eat some eat breakfast with Joe Montana, which is still crazy for me to think that's going to happen. <laughs> He's going to kick off the event and then everything is going to be actionable. So I have, you know, I have some of the best owners, trainers, operators in the country. And I got Wyatt Hempworth, Hempworth, which is, you know, another mentor of mine. I talk, I talked to him, you know, you know, me and him are polar opposite, but we understand right. each other. Um, and, you know, I was just talking to Wyatt yesterday and, 
what he's built with any hours is amazing. I mean, 70 mm-hmm. over 70 million, 18 million in EBITDA out of that little Valley is insanity in a year. Uh, and then obviously he's growing throughout the whole, you know, I think he's, I was talking to him yesterday. He's pretty close to a half a billion by the end of the year, which is just Unreal. nuts. And then I got, you know, Ishmael Valdez is he's like me, you know, another young guy He's growing a great business you know, right in my backyard and me and him have our battles back and forth over the years, but we both understand each other. We're both kind of the same way. We both have the same ticks and stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. me and Ishmael have been become close over the last year. Uh, Louis Bruno is going to come on stage, which is just, I just found out yesterday, him and Ishmael are going to come talk together. So that will be great. Tommy Mello, Dan Antonelli. And then obviously we have, you know, Ryan Steumann who runs a, a group called Apex, which is all about, uh, business growth and mindset growth and stuff like that. He's a fantastic speaker, Brad Lee, who's, he runs closer school. Uh, he's got a podcast called dropping bombs. It's a great podcast. If you don't listen to it. Uh, and then one of my favorite authors and speakers, Ed Milet's going to be there. Ed, Ed's. <laughs> If you've never read an Ed Milet book, you go read it and then all your friends are going to start hating you because you're going to be a totally different person the next day. Yeah. So uh, he's uh, someone, you know, reading his books really changed my mindset and, and what I want to do the rest of my life and how I want to be perceived and how I want to be remembered and really just maxing out my full potential. Um, he's going to talk and anybody that's ever been in a My Ed Milet uh, conference before, uh, you'll probably leave crying. So he's going to wrap up the show. And then one of the, one of the big calling cards for my events is the after parties, because obviously the, the stuff on the stage and all the stuff in that conference is great, but mingling with people, your peers, people you see on social media, people that are doing things that you've already done that you really want to do. Like, Hey, how do I grow my business? Well, go find someone that's already grown a business. Like you want to grow it. Or how do I build this culture? Whatever the, the, the thing might be, you get to go meet with these guys afterwards. So I have a, the first night I got a black tie event that's you know brought to us by JB warranties and they've been a fantastic sponsor and, and, Overall, they've just been great people and great company to work with. Great group, man. Brian, Brian's been a, a rock star, and I really love working with them. They've actually been to every one of my events I've ever thrown, even my awesome. my uh, my first one, which was in a parking lot. And uh, yeah, so they're they're throwing the, we're doing the black tie event the first night. I got a whole orchestra band that's going to be playing uh, some Frank Sinatra music. I've got cigar rollers. I got a, like a VIP treatment for that night. And then to end the event, after Ed Milet, we have this uh, Halloween party. So we have our, our annual Halloween party. I rented out this outdoor, uh, so it's the day club, but rented out for nighttime and I got run DMC is going to be DJing it, which is freaking crazy that I'm going to be <laughs> at an event that I'm throwing that run DMC is there performing. Uh, and it's a great venue, outdoor venue. It's got these like private cabanas you can rent out. So if you guys are a vendor or even if you're a business, you're bringing your staff, you can rent out your own private cabana area for the show. You guys have your own servers and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. So overall, like if you come to my event, it's, it's not like anything you've been to before. It's not like this, anything this industry has ever really done. This is something different. Uh, it's exciting. It's going to be actionable. It's going to be things that, like I said, I, I personally, I just want to, I want to see the whole industry come back together and, and I've been mm-hmm. part of breaking it apart a little bit. Um, so if you guys are people that, you know, I've been in arguments with, let's try to men- make amends and, and come together. And, and I think that I, I think I want to be the light in this industry and kind of bring us together. And that's what these events are going to continue to be year after year. Uh, they're going to continue to grow and it's just going to move us in the right direction and make this industry exciting again. Right. It's just not your grandpa's industry anymore. These are, we're high level people. We're red carpet people now, and we need to start acting like that. And, and we need to be around each other and start pushing us in that direction so we can become more professional and be, make more people really understand that the trades are here. We're here to, we're here to, you know, create better lives for people. So I'm excited. This episode, like all episodes is brought to you by contractor commerce, plug and play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store. 